Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care, and during this week's podcast, we'll be discussing the concept of reference-based pricing and how it can yield significant cost savings for employers and health plans. Reference-based pricing programs work by comparing all brand name and generic drug options within a certain therapeutic category and identifying the lowest cost options. From there, copays are adjusted in order to encourage the selection of the lowest cost alternatives. Research has shown that these programs can reduce costs by an average of 20% each year. In addition to drugs, reference-based pricing has found itself being used for services like MRIs and sites of care. We sat down with David Henka, the CEO of Active Radar, to dig deeper into the concept, how it's being used in practice, and what the results have shown. Hi, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Jamie. It's a pleasure to join you. So I want to talk to you today about reference-based pricing. Um, so to start for some background, how does this work, and historically, what have been the opinions of different stakeholders regarding this method? Reference pricing is not a new concept. It's been used uh, quite extensively throughout the United States for a variety of medical and procedural situations. I think the best example of reference pricing has to do uh, in two different categories, one of which would be for knee and hip replacement surgeries. There's a wide variety of price variations for knee and hip replacement, depending on the location and the hospital that's used for the procedure. And what a lot of re, uh, employers have done is they've identified local area, local hospitals that can do the procedure for a fixed cost. They set that cost, uh, they measure the quality of the outcomes, and they will reimburse their uh, employees 100% if they use one of those hospitals and, and providers for knee and hip replacement surgery. And that's considered the reference price. Now, the the actual patient is free to go to any other hospital which is in the network, but they will just pay the difference between the reference price that has been established uh, and the other prices that hospitals are charging for those services. And this really kind of drives a little bit of competition within the local markets and also drives uh, hospitals to really kind of adjust what their pricing uh, schedule is as well. The other area in which reference pricing is used quite routinely is in uh, high-cost imaging. Um, there is a high variation of price between MRI and CAT scans, whether uh, at the location of the facility that the test is being used. A hospital-based MRI or CAT scan machine is traditionally uh, two to three times more expensive than uh, a non-hospital-based unit. And so, uh, again, for for non-emergency or non-urgent scans, many health plans and and employers will encourage people to use the lower-cost facilities. And that's, you know, essentially a reference pricing model. Now, we've extended the same concept into prescription drugs uh, with a little bit different twist. In prescription drugs, for non-specialty drugs, drugs that people get a 90-day supply for, there are dozens and dozens of drugs available in different therapeutic categories, which actually provide the same therapeutic benefit. For example, there's a whole class of medications for cholesterol that are called statins. Uh, and there's, there's a number of drugs in this therapeutic category. And depending on the dose that is given, they all have the ability to lower your LDL cholesterol to the same amount. 
what we've been able to uh, do is to identify the therapeutically equivalent drug at the drug dose level uh, that is the least expensive in that therapeutic category and make that the benchmark. So the benchmark drug is what the employer will reimburse for, that uh, you're free to get any other drug that's, that is prescribed to you within that category. But if you, if you don't switch to the lowest cost drug, you'll just pay the difference. Uh, and it's a choice that you make along with your doctor on what the best course of therapy is for you. But the drug that provides the therapeutically equivalent benefit is the one that's reimbursed. So the first thing that comes to mind for the pros of this is, like you said, the increased competition and kind of lowering healthcare costs. So what are the different other pros and cons of using this method? Well, the pros are is that it provides transparency to uh, a marketplace in which there's very little, if any, transparency to the cost of medications. And, and most individuals are, are aware that they have to pay uh, a copayment for their drugs, and it, they, their copayment might be $20. But what they don't know is if that drug costs $50 or $400. And, and that's the real kind of veil of secrecy that exists within many aspects of, of medical care, but particularly in the pharmaceutical uh, space. So what we're doing is we're lifting that veil uh, uh, and, and increasing the transparency and not only letting the member know, but also letting the prescriber know that there's a tremendous cost differential between these medications. And then providing them options to allow them to choose a drug that best meets their their patients' medical needs, but it is at the lower cost. At the same time, providing some consumerism to the equation by allowing the actual member to keep the same higher cost medication, but just paying the difference between the low cost and the high cost. And we really like the analogy is that, you know, for most people who travel on business, their, their employer will reimburse them for a coach seat. That's pretty much standard procedure for most corporate, in corporate America. Uh, what we're saying is that um, we'll reimburse you for that coach seat, uh, but if you want to bump up to first class, you're welcome to do so, but you just have to pay out of your pocket and that the employer is not going to be paying that for that higher cost drug for no therapeutic benefit. Right. And like you mentioned, in addition to services, this could also be utilized for pharmaceuticals. Have you noticed, I know you mentioned statins, are there certain disease states or classes of drugs that this works better for than others? Yeah, currently we evaluate 65 different therapeutic categories of non-specialty drugs. And these are drugs that people will take for uh, to maintain a chronic condition primarily, uh, usually take on a daily basis. And these are the type of drugs that you would get a 90-day supply at the pharmacy. So drugs for cholesterol, hypertension, asthma, diabetes, hormone replacement. These are drugs that are the most widely prescribed drugs in the United States the most widely available drugs and the most widely studied drugs for that matter. And many of these drugs have generic equivalents that have been on the market for 30 or even 40 years. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of background and a lot of literature on the effectiveness and the therapeutic profiles of these medications. And quite frankly, we see a huge variation between the cost of generic drugs. Generic drugs as all drugs are in the United States, they're not regulated from a pricing standpoint. And so we see the price of generic drugs going up at a markedly increasing rate. And most of our recommended therapeutic switches, over 40%, are actually recommending switching somebody from a high-cost generic drug to a lower-cost generic equivalent and still saving not only the member, but also the employer a ton of money in the process. Right. And are there any concerns or challenges with newly approved drugs with less information or drugs that have 
orphan drug status that have been improved into a kind of a class that doesn't have a lot of different options. Are there challenges with that? Yeah, there are challenges with that. And in fact, that's a that's an area of great concern amongst clinicians and amongst employers and plan sponsors about, you know, we need to cover these drugs, which are have a narrow utilization for a very specific disease and are very expensive. And those types of specialty drugs, in my opinion, need to be covered by uh, plan sponsors and employers because there isn't a therapeutic option. Now, on the negative side, those drugs are also have a very, very high price tag to them as well. And that's an issue that needs to be addressed, I think, at more of a policy level, perhaps at the federal level. It's not an area in which we're addressing with our program, because like I mentioned, we're looking at drugs specifically that are non-specialty drugs that are used for the most common chronic conditions that are seen in the United States today. The area that you mentioned about uh, orphan drugs and specialty drugs is an area of great concern for employers, and it's an area in which we're looking at uh, moving our program into, but in certain therapeutic categories that there are more options, including rheumatoid arthritis, human growth hormone, and multiple sclerosis, uh, where there are some therapeutic bandwidth that there, there are alternatives in those areas. And now on the service side of things, like you mentioned, if a plan implements reference-based pricing, they'll cover the services up until that reference point. Are there any concerns that this might have unintended consequences by limiting access to care? And what would you kind of say can mitigate this or would you say to critics who bring this up? That's a great point. And so the the core of our program is that we are an analytics and technology company, but we also focus in on the member communication aspect of providing information directly to the member, to the pharmacist, and to the prescriber. And what we have seen as an unintended consequence to our program is that because we over-communicate the need for somebody to take their maintenance medication, whether it be for cholesterol, diabetes, or for hypertension, the unintended consequence that we have uh, actually verified is that there's an increase in medication adherence after our program has gone live, meaning that people are refilling their prescriptions for their maintenance medications on a much higher and more regular basis than they were before our program was implemented. And we feel that that's part, in fact, due to our communication strategy. And also, in many cases, members are paying less money for their medication. Either they're paying from a brand to a generic copay, or if their medication is actually less than the generic copay, they pay that amount as well. So if their generic copay is 20 and the new low-cost alternative is $7, they pay $7. So it, it's a, the unintended consequences have actually been a win-win. Increased medication adherence, lower cost for the plan sponsor or the employer, and in many cases, lower out-of-pocket costs for the members who are taking these medications. And you've mentioned this has been widely used in practice. So in addition to what you just mentioned, what are other results that you've seen, whether it be on cost and also quality of care? So the interesting thing is that when we speak to most employers or most plan sponsors, you know, who are covering uh, their their employees on a self-funded basis, and we're evaluating, you know, what their trends are for pharmaceutical spend, most large employers have a generic dispensing rate in the mid 80% range, meaning over 80, 85% of all medications that are dispensed are a generic alternative. And so for, for most consultants and actually plan sponsors, they tell us that we can't do much more than that. We're, we're dispensing at the highest rate of generics that we can and still provide adequate coverage for our members. 
But what we point out is that there is this huge delta. There's this huge opportunity in the cost of generic drugs that is being unrecognized not only by the PBMs, but also by the employers themselves. And when we do our analysis and take a look at their claims, we could point out on a, on a case-by-case basis, on a member-by-member basis, actually, belly button by belly button, what medications these people are taking and what the cost savings is per medication. And the costs are dramatic. Switching just a person from a, a drug that costs $200 a month uh, to a drug that costs $30 a month times their entire employee population adds up to a lot of money. And in, in the case of our population, most people who have high cholesterol also have hypertension. They may have depression and diabetes. So they're taking three or four medications to treat their chronic conditions. And all of those drugs, there are low-cost alternatives. So the numbers add up, even if you're dispensing a high level of generic medications. And what advice would you have for plans looking to best implement reference-based pricing? So it, it all depends on what the priority is of them as a plan sponsor or as an employer. You know, what are they looking to achieve? Are they looking to achieve uh, a sustainable health benefits program that could withstand a potential recession, uh, that can withstand potential cost cutting in other departments? Is there health a benefits program running as efficiently as possible and looking at ways to kind of get ahead of the curve and evaluate what are cost-saving options. And in my experience as both um, a plan sponsor and also a consultant is that virtually every cost-saving program that has been uh, shared with me actually reduces the number of services or increases the cost of uh, co-payments or deductibles. Uh, and that's the that's been traditionally the fastest way to help control cost. This is the only program in which I've come in contact with, which uh, on the first month of implementation dramatically reduces your pharmacy spend up to you know 20 to 30 percent. It happens the first month and it happens continuously because the people have the opportunity to either switch to the low-cost drug or pay the difference. But either way, the plan sponsor is only re- reimbursing uh, at that benchmark drug starting on day one. So the plan savings occur on day one. They don't occur a year in, a, in the future or two years in the future like many other cost-saving programs will, will promise. Our, our cost savings occur day one. And I think that's something that if it's a priority for a purchaser, that we, we have a solution that they, they should evaluate. Great. Well, that's actually all the questions I had for you. What, did you have any final thoughts or anything else you wanted to mention before I let you go? Reference pricing is a way for a plan sponsor to evaluate a better way to manage their, their cost spend without changing their benefit uh, program. You don't have to change co-payments. You don't have to change your formulary. You don't have to change access to a pharmacy network. It's a way to evaluate what is the lowest cost drug in a therapeutic category and still provide your members with the, with the benefit that they need to treat their medical condition. It, it makes sense. It's been evaluated. It's been researched and studied. And there was a, a paper published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine that effectively looks at reference pricing as a therapeutic option for health plans and purchasers to evaluate. So it's something that, that's out there in the market. It's something that should be evaluated and we'd be more than happy to take a look at your claims and, and give you um, an evaluation on how much money you could save. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jamie. To learn more, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes.
You can get in touch with us by emailing info at AJMC.com or by following us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And finally, if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.